Our reading this morning is taken from Hosea chapter 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more I called them, the more they went from me. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and offering incense to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with bands of love. I was to them like those who lift infants to their cheeks. I bent down to them and fed them. They shall return to the land of Egypt, and Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword rages in their cities, it consumes their oracle priests, and devours because of their schemes. My people are bent on turning away from me. To the Most High they call, but he does not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zebuim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and no mortal. Friends, we just sang a great truth, one which we need to hear on a day such as today. Did you notice it in the words of the hymn, sorrow and love flow mingled down. This wonderfully evocative line from Isaac Watts invites us to reflect on the emotions of the crucifixion. The next line takes us deeper into the juxtaposition. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet? Love and sorrow, sorrow and love, the anguished finality of death and the absolute faithfulness of God. Today we gather on Remembrance Sunday to remember and honour the sacrifice of so many in war and to commit ourselves once again to the Christ-like path of peace and peacemaking. And I think the combination of sorrow and love captures for us something of the tragedy of lost lives, the heartbreak of lost loved ones, and the cost of war on all who live and die under its shadow. But it also invites us to enter into the deep emotions of loss, to consider our own experiences of tragedy and bereavement as they merge into the deep theological tragedy of God's own child dying before his time. It evokes for us feelings of hopelessness, futility and grief, overwhelming yet somehow contained within an overwhelming moment of divine love. 
There is, as I said, a deep mystery here, sorrow and love, tragedy and hope, futility and faith, all flowing, mingled down together. And the mystery of the Trinity, I think, can help us here as we seek to understand that the cross is not God sending the Son to his death, but rather that in the death of the Son, God too suffers and dies. The cross is God's entering into the depth of human suffering, God becoming at one with us in our most vulnerable moments of mortality. God dying as we must all ourselves one day die. Jürgen Moltmann memorably said that on the cross we meet the crucified God and he published a book under that title, The Crucified God. And I just want to read a, a paragraph from this for you to give you a sense of what Moltmann was trying to get at. He says, when God becomes human in Jesus of Nazareth, God not only enters into the finitude of what it means to be human, but in his death on the cross also enters into the situation of humanity's God-forsakenness. Jesus does not die the natural death of a finite being, but the violent death of a criminal on a cross, a death of complete abandonment by God. The suffering in the passion of Jesus is abandonment, rejection by God, his loving parent. God does not become a religion so that humans may participate in him by corresponding religious thoughts and feelings. God does not become a law so that humans might participate in him through obedience to that law. God does not become an ideal so that humans may achieve community with him through constant striving. Rather, God humbles himself and takes upon himself the eternal death of the godless and the God-forsaken, so that all the godless and God-forsaken of this world can experience communion with him. So says Jürgen Moltmann in his book, The Crucified God. And this way of understanding the cross tells us that God was present at the Somme, at Ypres and at Passchendaele, not as a divine general directing the troops to die in the name of a higher purpose but as a Tommy in the trenches, facing the enemy with intermingled fear and courage, doing his duty with love and sorrow. Sorrow and love flow mingled down. This is the God of the cross. And this, this phrase from the hymn captures also, I think, some of the complexities inherent in our reading this morning from the prophet Hosea. Here we have another poet also writing a hymn to reflect on where God is 
in the face of human frailty and suffering. And the poet Hosea from ancient Israel draws on imagery from across the spectrum, as if grasping desperately for some metaphor, however inadequate, to capture the turmoil they sense brewing in God's heart. And so in quick succession, Hosea introduces us to Israel as a recalcitrant son, to Israel as one who is idolatrous, to Israel as an ungrateful patient at the hands of a divine healer, to Israel as wandering livestock needing to be brought home, to Israel as the recipients of divine tenderness, and ultimately to Israel as one hell-bent on turning from God. All of this is there in Hosea's imagery for Hosea's people Israel. And all of this imagery is piled quickly upon itself in the opening verses of Hosea's song. And it's used to communicate a great truth, which is that despite God's history of tender care and concern for God's people, the story of God's people is of people who consistently reject that tender care in favor of following their own inclinations. So Hosea's poem begins with a painful recollection of the times God has previously shown love and tenderness to his people, only to be rejected time and again. Ancient Israel's childhood is recalled, with the prophet remembering that God had called his son out of Egypt a line we're going to be hearing again in a few weeks time of course when we get to the Christmas story and we find the gospel writers quoting Hosea to remember God's son Jesus going to Egypt with Mary and Joseph but here in Hosea it's not referring to Jesus that's something that comes later it's referring to Israel's release from the oppression of the Pharaoh to their wanderings in the wilderness and their entry into the promised land. Out of Egypt I have called my son, says God. And in Hosea's poem, the sweetness of this experience of liberation is soured by Israel's subsequent acts of disobedience. The text summarizes Israel's story in this way. The more Israel was called by God, the more they rebelled against God. So blind, says Hosea, had God's people become that they couldn't even recognize who was trying to heal them. I want to just pause for a moment and hear that again. So blind had God's people become that they couldn't even recognize who was healing them. This surely is the perfect description of human sin. Our inability to, to perceive our Redeemer as anything but our enemy. And just as with all of us, sin brings consequences. So in ancient Israel's life, their turning away from God's will and ways triggered the rising up of nations against them. Foreign domination ensued. 
Wars raged and devouring swords afflicted them. Human sin leading to works of violence is nothing new. And for even Israel, God's chosen and beloved people, it got to that point where it seemed to them that God had in the end turned God's face from them. And so God's beloved became God's forsaken. And sometimes the path to liberation from sin involves a confrontation with the seriousness of the results of our actions. Forgiveness is not absolution from consequences. And sin sometimes opens the gates of hell on earth in a way that simple repentance does not close them. Sometimes there is no path out, merely a path through. This can be true for us as individuals, as sometimes the consequences of our personal sin are made known and real in our lives. But it can also be true at a community level, the level of communities and nations. Sometimes there is no path out once the gates of hell have been opened by human sin. Sometimes there is merely a path through. The psalmist, of course, knew this. Psalm 23 speaks of the psalmist's journey through the valley of the shadow of death. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. The glory of God's eternal love is that even in the midst of sorrow, even in the depths of God-forsakenness, even in the valley of the shadow of death itself, even there, God is. And so we get the interplay in Hosea's poem between God's action in confronting Israel with the destructive consequences of their sin and God's hiddenness from them at the time of their greatest trial. And it is, it is the paradox of the cross, written large across the story of God's people, as sorrow and love flow mingled down in the sin and the death, meeting the loss and the pain, all of it held, all of it held within God's eternal embrace. When God hides, and God's face is sometimes hidden from us in the moments of great human sin, sometimes it is very hard, too impossible, to work out where God is as the bombs fall. When God hides, and terrors are unleashed, and the redeemer and liberator of our souls is suddenly out of reach. Well, this is the bind of sin. We turn from God, 
Our actions have consequences and we find that God is no longer visible to us. This is the hell of war. As humans descend to the depths of killing and the only saviour that can be seen is the salvation that will be found through yet more violence. And yet. The message of Hosea is that no matter how bad it gets, no matter how great the sin, no matter how great the betrayal, no matter how great the violence, God does not, in the end, give up on humanity. St. Paul grasped this truth, writing to the Christians in Rome. Romans chapter 5, verse 10. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, how much more surely, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? The God of Hosea's poem is the same God spoken of by Paul. This is a God who chooses, quite apart from human initiative, to nonetheless be reconciled with those who have become God's enemies. And in a world of enmity, when people fight to the death over land and ideology, in this world, in our world, without warning, God's heart is strangely warmed. A series of anguished questions in Hosea's poem reveal God's turning away as being from the perspective of eternity but a moment. How can I give you up, God exclaims in verse 8. Just the thought of ignoring God's people, refusing their prayers, brings God out from behind the locked door of concealment and into the open where God is available again as a God of compassion and mercy. Friends, however deep the pit that humans dig for themselves, personally or corporately, however deep that pit may be, it is never deep enough to keep out the light of God's love for eternity. But let's be clear, this shift from absence to compassion was not prompted by any human deed. It comes from God's resolve alone, God's free choice to be a God of compassion. In the face of all the reasons why God might choose absence, all the reasons why God might choose vengeance, nonetheless, Hosea's insight is that God chooses presence and God chooses reconciliation. Between verses 7 and 8, there is no change in Israel. There is only a change in God. But rejecting hiddenness, God brings forth new promises. God says, I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. And as Walter Brueggemann has shown, God not only resolves to set aside anger, God, in fact, takes the righteous divine judgment that God has every right to mete out on sinners on the earth for their evil and their wickedness. God takes that righteous anger and turns it in on God's own self. 
And so we're back at the cross. God on the cross, absorbing into the broken body of the Son all of the pain, all of the hurt, all of the agony of broken humanity. The key insight to this is found in verse 8, where God resolves not to give Israel up like the cities of Admar and Zeboim, cities that had been destroyed along with Sodom and Gomorrah in Deuteronomy and Genesis. The term used to describe the overturning of God's heart here is the same term used to describe the overthrowing of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. In other words, Israel's sin, the sin of the people of God, is compared with the sins of the cities destroyed in Genesis 18 to 19. But where Hosea differs from Genesis is in his insistence that God will absorb the judgment that Israel deserves. Walter Brueggemann says, God resolves to contain the earthquake of sin within God's own life. Israel deserved judgment, but what it got was mercy, obtained through a God who was willing to suffer for their sins. And we are then, therefore, back at the cross, and God suffering for us, and God suffering with us. When Christians think of God's willingness to suffer on behalf of sinful humans, they often think of Christ hanging on the cross. We've built it into our building, haven't we? But Hosea's poem, written in the face of the consequences of human sin, help us realise that the cross is not some new development in the life of God. Rather, it represents who God is fundamentally. The cross is a climactic moment, but it is one that is situated along an already existent trajectory. The God of the cross is the God of ancient Israel. In Christ, God does not become a suffering God. Rather, Christ makes flesh God's eternally deep longing to always be among God's people, however sinful they have become. A longing that reaches back into the history of God's revelation and therefore forwards to our own experience of what it means for us to be sinful humans in our time and our context. Hosea's God is the God of the cross, is our God. And God's willingness to suffer on behalf of God's creation is revealed in Christ, taking into himself not only sinful human rage, but also divine absence. The cry of dereliction from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? is the cry of every sinner reaching the depths of their fracturedness. It is the cry of those who live under bombardment in war. It is the cry of those who face death and whose loved ones have been killed. And it is also the cry of the one who finds that in the depths of their despair, 
the glimmer of light that shines into the pit. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is not the end. The valley of the shadow of death is not the end. There is light. Because God has not, in the end, abandoned us. Thanks be to God. Loving God, you know what it's like to live with sorrow and love. Your son Christ came and then understood human suffering through the cross to experience sorrow that permeates so many lives today through war and injustice. Loving God, for the nations and those in authority, I pray that they will seek your wisdom and they will see with open hearts the world of the suffering so they too are sorrowful, so that they can strive for peace. God, for those who are the most vulnerable and for justice for victims of war, those in Gaza, in Ukraine, Libya, Sudan, Syria, and those in wars that are forgotten about. I pray that those in authority hear their despair and demands of peace. In these rising waters of despair, I pray to you for hope and change. For peace and justice in the world, I pray that in Dubai with COP28, we listen to our crying world. We pray for those who release the least CO2 get the justice they need, since they are those who are most affected by climate change, whether through flooding, hurricanes and drought. They need an answer to our climate crisis. I pray that action is agreed for a reduction in CO2 emissions, for no more, more oil exploration and environmental justice. For our UK political community, I pray for calmness and for political maturity, for love rather than hate, to think of compassion of others rather than of our own selfish gain. I pray for the homeless who are in need of shelter, those who are struggling in the cold shop doorways and in tents in parks. As our weather gets colder and the rain continues to lash, I pray your spirit of protection as we are reminded that you are a refuge and a strong tower for all those who need it. And for here, our community here at Bloomsbury, I pray for all those who need your healing touch, whether physically or emotionally. I pray you will strengthen all those in need and provide comfort to those who seek you in their despair. I particularly pray for Barbara now, God, that she will feel your touch and give her calmness as she goes through this last period of her life. Comforting God, help us to repent on, those, on what we have done and forgive us for ignoring the needs of the most humble and lowly. May you move human hearts to loosen the chains of injustice and break every yoke. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen.
Thank mm-hmm. you.